I think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness. You get stronger as you become more open. If I can be vulnerable, that'll help other people be vulnerable. And it doesn't work for me to be silent. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you this story. This is the first time that I've told aloud. If I could have known that you and I were alike... I would have had so much more hope. Listening to other people's stories, you realize... Wow, these people are all experiencing the same thing that we are? You are not the only one. I'm Dr. Anne Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. A quick note about today's show. Even though specific medications are discussed, this is not an endorsement and should not be confused with a treatment recommendation. If you have concerns about anxiety in your own life, please do see your own doctor. Today is the fifth show in our series on living with anxiety. Initially, we thought we'd do one interview for each of the major anxiety disorders like panic disorder, phobias, etc. But it turns out that anxiety does not follow the rules. And almost everyone we've talked to so far suffers from more than one anxiety disorder. And today is no exception. I'll be talking with Monica Graben about her experiences with obsessive compulsive disorder, a particular version of performance anxiety, and also skin picking. Monica is a musician and educator who has specialized in teaching American history through song and has done so in schools and many other venues since 1986. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Monica. Hi, Anne. Thanks. I want to start at the beginning. How did anxiety first make its appearance in your life? It wasn't until I was in my 40s that anxiety became an issue in my life. Uh, And it really came about from performance. Although, for all I know, it was there all along. It was just something I lived with, you know, but... uh, So you became aware of it. Were you performing more in your 40s? Yes, I see. So in your 40s, you start performing a lot. And how does the anxiety show up? In what way? As insomnia. I had a teacher training, a professional development day I was going to do in Meriden, Connecticut, which is between three and three and a half hours from where I live. And it was something that I had done before, but this one was going to be particularly challenging for me in that... Uh, It was high school, which I didn't work with high school teachers very much. And somehow I had to have a whole day's worth starting 7.30 in the morning, going until 3 in the afternoon of activities and whatever to keep them working all day. So I drove down late afternoon and I tried to go to sleep that night, knowing I had a big day the next day. And I just watched the hours go by. And I think back then I used to take uh, Benadryl or things like that to help me to sleep, and I didn't have any. And I just watched 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock, and finally probably about 4 or 5 in the morning I got a little bit of sleep. And then I had to go do this full day, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when the day was over, I had to then drive three hours home again. And I did it. But I learned later through therapy, really, that what I had set in motion that day was this idea that I had a really big responsibility and I couldn't sleep. Right. So you, 
you're so anxious because you're thinking, I have all this really important thing I have to do. And oh my God, oh my God, I can't sleep. So there's this panic about not sleeping. Exactly. So presumably there's at least two layers there. So you're not sleeping because you're anxious. And then you're so anxious about the fact that you're not sleeping. Exactly. And I have to be on my game tomorrow. I can't just phone it in. And over the years, what happened was the big gig that I couldn't sleep before became medium things. Then it became almost every time I ever had to perform. Then it became the dippiest little thing that I had to do. Everything became something that I could not sleep before. And in fact, it got so that all I had to do was have the thought, what if I can't sleep? And that was basically the end of that. So would it make you not even want, I mean, did it make you start not wanting to sign up for gigs because the insomnia ahead of time would be so awful? Well, it got there, but it was gradual. Um, the absolute worst point for me ended up being uh, a residency that I had at a middle school in Turner, Maine, which is about an hour and a half from my home. And I would have to get there very early in the morning, um, maybe eight-ish, and be ready to, to roll around eight o'clock in the morning. And at this point now, my doctor had prescribed sleeping pills. So I did have sleeping pills, um, which got stronger as the time went on. And so at this point, I'm now taking Dalmain, which is a very uh, heavy-duty sleeping pill of the old school, I think. And I would take one right before, you know, at a normal hour, maybe before bed, and then at midnight or so, knowing that it's going to make me really wretched the next day, I would just be so desperate, I would take another one and watch the hours again go by. Um, and this was day after day to the point where I was getting an hour to an hour and a half of sleep, literally, and then driving an hour or more, and then working all day with kids and having to really be on my game, drive home, take care of my family, you know, do the, all that, and then do it again. And that was when I just, I can't live like this anymore. So I went to my doctor, my family practitioner, who I've known for years and years, and he heard this story and said, you know, I think you've got OCD. And I think I really might be able to help you. And he prescribed Paxil for me, 20 milligrams. And he also sent me to a therapist. And that just changed my life. How? How did it change your life? Suddenly, I could go to sleep at night. And uh, suddenly, so literally, it was a quick change. It was within, uh, it takes a couple of weeks for the dr drug to get into your system. And then I just found that things that had bothered me so much that I would just obsess about, they just weren't doing the same thing to me. I don't know how to explain it other than um, the other thing he did was he gave me permission. You know, taking the sleeping pill is not the end of the world. This is not a failing or anything like that. When you have particular stress, if you have a gig coming up, go ahead and do that. It's okay. So that's what I, I would allow myself to do that. I would only need one pill. And uh, he started me on temazepam, which is a less uh, obtrusive drug for me. I don't even feel it the next day. 
I could take one pill, and if I wasn't performing, I didn't take anything, and it was fine. Um, I could manage all that. So it sounds like there were so many layers to, to what he did that helped. I mean, on the one hand, he gave you a medication that made a huge difference, and he gave you a, an additional sleep medicine sort of for when the Paxil wasn't working. And Paxil was sort of like the foundation. And the foundation, this, exactly. Yeah, and the temazepam was like a, an additional sleep aid. But it also sounds like he relieved you of the kind of self-blame and anxiety you were having about even needing a sleeping pill. Absolutely. I'm sure I inherited this tendency. My parents took just lived on second all. Oh. I mean, they did. My father would sit up night after night after night drinking and uh, taking sleeping pills. I see. So, so they were on barbiturates, which were even stronger. Yes. Yeah. And also this would have probably been about at the same age that I was having the problem. So it's interesting, though, though, the fact that your parents needed sleeping pills, did that make it so you were even more determined not to use absolutely. them? Absolutely. I, I was see. not going to be that. I right. absolutely did not want to do that. Right. Um, but the other thing he did was he did send me to therapy as well, which was also wonderful. Um, each therapist I've ever seen has been strong in some ways and not so strong in others. And, and that's fine, you know, but I get something from each of them. I remember this uh, one therapist, we'll get to skin picking in a minute, but, but when I first told him I had trouble because I had these scars on my legs, the first thing he said was, I think you need to buy some more skirts. <laughs> Such an effective intervention. <laughs> but he was right, you know, I mean, it's just true. I remember, you know, I, I just, uh, and, and I, I should tell you how that came about as well. Do, um, do yeah. tell me, so... Right. So you get into therapy for the sleep. Your sleep yes. is improving dramatically. You're no longer, because you can sleep, you're no longer obsessing as much before your performances. So there's enormous relief about that. When does the skin picking start to become more of a problem? Shortly thereafter. So I had always had obsessive compulsive tendencies. Actually, I was going to mention when I was a child, ever since I've been a little girl, I count syllables. I count things. I can't help myself. I'm constantly counting things. I just have these little rituals that I do. And, that's, right, and that that's, would be considered the compulsion part. Exactly, of the compulsion part, right. Yeah. So um, I do have trouble where my skin gets very itchy and I will scratch and then I will make these scabs. But after... Taking the Paxil, which I did not associate with it at all at first, I just noticed all of a sudden I've got all these things and I keep scratching and I keep picking. And I went to another doctor who, for something totally different, and he saw my back and he said, oh, I think you should see a dermatologist. And I said, okay, that's a good idea. So I made an appointment with the dermatologist and he took one look at my back. I mean, literally within an instant, he said, oh, that's stress. And I said wait a minute, I'm on Paxil. I don't have stress. Right. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm sleeping. How could I have stress? <laughs> I don't have stress. So that was when I discovered that anxiety can be a little like whack-a-mole. You press it down on one spot, but it can rise somewhere else. So now I'm on this seesaw. Okay, I really sleep a lot better, yeah. but I find myself picking my skin, which is really embarrassing it makes scars that everyone can see. And um, that was uh, another thing. Another therapist, when I went to see him about skin picking, said, um, 
you know, what, what do you think people see? And of course, I think people see these scars everywhere. And he looked at me and he said, you really think that's what people see when they meet you? And I was, of course. And and was and was his kind of incredulity was that was that a little more helpful? Because, I mean, Much it, yes. I've thought of that so many times. Yes, because he was really kind of being a reality check. Like actually, oh, totally. it hasn't even. No one else yeah. sees this, and that's what I would say to anyone who has this problem. No one sees it the way you see it. No one. Nobody cares. Well, because so initially, <laughs> I, you know, my assumption before I met my first patient with skin picking was that the embarrassing thing was that there was a compulsion that felt out of control. Mm-hmm. What I didn't know was that the actual visual signs of it were the embarrassing thing. And for you, is it both? Bo- Absolutely both, both. I mean, you're just, you're so embarrassed that you cannot stop from doing this thing that is obviously detrimental. And you can be very good. You can have, you know, four or five good days in a row where you are really disciplined. And one afternoon, one hour can completely destroy that. And you're right back where you started. It's not, you know, you have all these scars once again. And so take me through it because Mm -hmm. so there you are and you've got some kind of little scab on your arm Mm -hmm. to start with, say. Maybe you had a mosquito bite or something that Mm -hmm. wasn't initially self-inflicted. Right. Is the picking driven by um, the wish to kind of make your skin perfectly smooth? Yes. Uh Aha. For your own sake or because it feels better or because it would look better in your mind? No. Um, No, it's for your own sake. It's Uh just to feel better. Okay. And then the feeling itself when you do start picking, is it, what, yeah, what is it like? That is, it it feels good. And, you know, um, that's the problem is the pain almost feels good. And that is awful, but it's true. Um, It's relaxing. I hate to say it, but it is. Um, I guess people who cut themselves, it's probably got some sort of relaxing sense too. I don't know, but it's, uh, you find yourself checking yourself a lot. There's a lot of just touching. And it kind of catches you both ways. It can be from lack of stimulation or too much stimulation. And it's something you can do pretty mindlessly, it sounds like. Totally mindlessly. And you can catch yourself doing this and say, you know, oh my God, here I am again. Um, and it's, uh, it's very, very frustrating. Now, you made an analogy to cutting yourself. And cutting you know, has many different meanings for different people. It mm. doesn't have one standard thing. But for some people, there is a relief in kind of transforming overwhelming emotional distress into physical pain. That's Mm. much easier to bear. Does it have that sense for you? I don't know. I'm not hearing that. I mean, I'm not hearing that you do it out of desperation. No, no. So that part of it is really quite different. Then maybe we won't use that. Maybe not. We won't use that (laughs) analogy. Although, I mean, the thing that it seems is similar is that you can actually inflict actual real harm on yourself. Yes. Make yourself bleed and have a scar afterwards. Yes. And feel somewhat mortified afterward yes. that people see it. Yes. Or the fear is that they might see it. Exactly. Well, they do. You know, it's not that no one ever sees it. They do. Nobody cares that they see it. They don't see it the way you do. Yeah. 
I can, I actually, can I tell you a brief little vignette that just happened to me like that? Please. Because of skin picking, and I, I, um, and by the way, I am absolutely mortified to even say that I have this problem, but we'll go from there. Um, because of that, I tended for many years to really shy away from anything sleeveless. You know, that was a big, big thing for me. And um, over the years, I really have come more to grips with the fact that I can live with this, that it's, it's actually worth it to me to be able to sleep if dealing with one section of my anxiety causes another to pop up. Okay. I can actually live with that, but it has taken quite a long time for me to say that. But just last week or two, I did a show and I was wearing a sleeveless blouse that I intended to wear a jacket over, but I was setting up. So I was just in my sleeveless blouse and, um, and I'm just doing my work and I saw a friend and I went over to see my friend and she said, Monica, your arms look so great. And what she meant was they looked fit. I looked really healthy. And to me, it was hysterically funny because here's this thing I'm always trying to hide and nobody sees this. In fact, all she sees is how strong you look. Is that you look strong. Exactly. One therapist said, um, I told her how, you know, I just see everybody else's skin and I never see anybody that looks like me. And she said, that's because that's what you look for. When you look at a person, you look at their skin. Do you think other people immediately look at your skin? That's not what they're looking at. Particularly like the skin on your arms? Yeah, they don't care. That's not, you know, they have their own thing they're looking for. So, So I really have learned that... Although I do have this problem and it drives me crazy, it drives me crazy less than it used to, mainly because of help I've gotten through therapy, through meditation, through just calming down, um, that it really is not the end of the world. Part of what I love about that is, you know, often the question is, what does recovery look like? Does it look like I've stopped picking my skin or does it look like I've made my peace with it? Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing from you is that it's really the second. You've made, you may still pick at your skin sometimes, but you've made your peace with it. You're not as ashamed as you used to be, Mm-mm. and it's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's not okay, okay, but again, you know, everybody's got something, you know? I mean, I'm not perfect. And that's right. the other piece. You know, obsessive-compulsive disorder has a lot, a big element of perfectionism in it. I have to be perfect, you know, I have to do it the best and I have to be the best prepared and this, that, and this has really made me face up to the fact that I am not perfect. I have this major flaw and it's out there for everybody to see and me to see and me to feel responsible for. And yet that's life, you know, that's how it is. This may seem too Pollyanna-ish, but do you ever think, well, maybe it's actually a gift because it helps me befriend myself? No, it's I too Pollyanna-ish. <laughs> I thought that was a stretch. Yeah, it's a stretch. <laughs> so, so when we when I was first thinking about this interview, I was thinking of of framing it in terms of you having three different kinds of anxiety: hmm. performance anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, and skin picking. And really, the more we talk, what I'm getting clearer about is that it's all different ways of, of OCD. I mean that yes. The, that the sleeplessness was a kind of obsessive worry. The skin picking was a kind of checking. So one of the cardinal symptoms of OCD 
is needing to check things like, have I turned the stove off? Have I locked the door? And and what you're describing is checking your skin. Is there right. any bump? I have actually never thought of it that way. Huh. That's very, that's very interesting. Yeah. Does it make sense? To you? Yes, it absolutely makes sense. Yes. And so actually they're all, they're all really different ways that obsessive compulsive yes. sort of expresses itself. And I want to ask now about a, a third way, because I understand from you, and this is very common in OCD, but often very hard to talk about, is that also this kind of recurrent violent images or yes. thoughts can come into your mind that are completely foreign to who you are, anything you'd ever want to do, but nonetheless yes. you have these recurring yes. violent images. And tell me a little bit about that for you. I would work in the kitchen. You know, I love to cook and I would be in the kitchen and I would pick up a knife and it seemed like every time I picked up a knife, I had this fear that I would stab my children with it, that I would stab somebody with it. And, uh, so a so, person that you love. Someone I loved, absolutely. And uh, the interesting thing about that was I had compassion on myself right away for that. I knew that this was just a thought. I knew that it wasn't real. I don't know why. And I do remember thinking about what about some poor young mother who might have a thought like this oh my God, what a horrible thing to have to live with. And I'm so, you know, I was so relieved that I didn't. And that's actually one of my main reasons for talking to you today is that I know how disturbing that can feel. And you feel like you must be really mentally ill, you know, serious. This is serious. And it was not me. And that is the one, the other thing that I have to say, the Paxil just ended. It was gone. Obsessive thoughts like that disappeared. That was miraculous to me. Part of what's so touching to me about your story is that, so you have this horrifying thought of stabbing one of your children, which, I mean, basically there's really no other more horrifying yeah. thought that I can think of. And yet you were able to have compassion for yourself and realize this does not mean something bad about me. This does not mean I actually secretly hate my children or don't want to be no. a mother. You were able to really have confidence that it didn't mean that about you. I'm so glad for you because I think that often, you know, postpartum depression is very well described and is in the popular culture, but postpartum obsessive thinking, in particular, this kind of anxiety is very common, but much less named and much less understood. Um, I actually remember when I was a young mother, I was in a swimming pool with my child, kind of bouncing him around. And I had this fleeting, terrifying thought that I could, you know, bounce him under the water. And, I, and in, in a matter of a minute or two, he would actually die. And even though it, was, it happened to me once throughout that whole period of his life, it disturbed me greatly because I don't think I maybe had as much compassion for myself as you did. <laughs> and it made me terrified about, was I a bad mother? What did this secretly mean about me? And I, I think, think it, in, go ahead. it's very easy to think that. Yes. It's very easy to think that. And it's only since in some ways being a psychiatrist was quite helpful to me because I started seeing it a lot and realizing that actually the people who are the safest you know, to never hurt their children are the ones who have these kinds of obsessive thoughts. In fact, the distress it causes is a very reassuring sign. Right. And right. I began to think of it that maybe sort of one of the cruelties of obsessive compulsive disorder is that it takes something 
that you would fear the most in the world and takes that and sort of turns it into this haunting mm. worry. Um, and is actually maybe a sign of how much you care about something. Yeah. Or at least that's what I try to offer. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that was really empowering for me at that time, this was when I, uh, I guess it was when I had first been diagnosed with OCD, but I was still having these thoughts occasionally. I read a book about OCD and there were a number of stories. And I remember one was a young father who had OCD and he had exactly the same thoughts, right? You know, the knives. And I thought, holy moly, I, I just, I was so mind blown to find out that this thing that to me was completely horrifying, it was just truly a symptom. It, it, it didn't, it's like having a fever when you're sick, you know, it, it didn't mean anything. It's such, a, it's such a striking question because in some ways throughout this whole series on anxiety and throughout in some ways the whole field in psychiatry, this question of meaning versus biology is the central dilemma. And, um, you know, the field has swung from one side to the other. And in this case, it sounds enormously relieving to think of it as straight up biology. In this case, obsessive compulsive disorder is basically a neurological illness a brain disease and the content doesn't necessarily have to have any meaning and that feels like phew. well I, that is actually the other thing I really wanted to say uh, and tell me. it is that when I would be laying in bed at night and not able to sleep eventually if it doesn't start immediately it's gonna start you start trying to find the cause what is it why am I not sleeping and if you have any issues with your parents or, you know, whatever. And because this was around performing and because my parents were not particularly supportive of me, especially as I was growing up. In fact, they were quite unsupportive of me, especially my mother was not, she couldn't have cared less what I was doing. Um, I know it's very unusual, but it's true. Um, so there was a great piece of laying in bed there thinking about my mother and how all those years of feeling unloved and unsupported in the thing I cared most about, that's what's keeping me awake. I feel like I'm going to fail because of my mother, okay? And, um, and I would think about my mom and, you know, parse it and try to squeeze it and take it apart and put it back together and find ways that I can overcome this issue. And I started taking Paxil. And I would lie in bed at night, and none of it mattered. It was gone. It didn't matter what my mother had done to me when I was 12. This was what's happening now. I can handle it. I, it, was, it was as though someone had just erased the blackboard. And uh, it completely astonished me that it would go away that quickly. So... I really feel that therapy helped me a lot. Um, people gave me really good ideas. I very much think people should not just take drugs and not talk to anybody about what it is they're doing uh, and what they feel. But at the same time, I feel that the drug really just wiped out a piece of diseased uh, tissue, as you might think about it, um, that was just absolutely uh, torturing me. 
I mean, it, I, it really was a major, major change in my life. I, I went on performing, you know. I mean, really, I was totally ready to hang it up. I could not stand it another day. So it saved your career, yeah. basically. It's interesting because, I, you know, as, as a therapist and with a lot of interest in the meaning of things, um, I, I think that part of the power of what you're saying about the biology is also in how freeing it is around stigma and shame. Mm. Because if this is, you know, a biological challenge for my brain, then we don't have to feel sort of weak that I didn't work through the issues of my mother. Or, you know, as if it's somehow not just a failing in the way that anxiety is often seen as a weakness, but also not as a kind of failing at having addressed something or worked something right. through. There's a way that it's quite liberating to right. see it as biology. Right. Yeah. Monica, it's been such a pleasure to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Not only because of your, your courage in naming embarrassing things, but also because um, I'm such a huge fan of your son. Oh, and, well, um, I'm a huge fan of my son, too. <laughs> so our thanks today to Gabe Graven, Monica's son, the producer of this show, who we'll thank in a minute as well. At the end of this interview, Monica acknowledges the relief that comes from learning her thoughts are a symptom of a brain disease. Studies have repeatedly shown differences in brain structure and function in individuals with OCD. Treatment with medication or therapy both lead to reduction of activity in a brain region called the thalamus, which is likely what leads to reduction in symptoms. These brain changes can be seen on PET scans after only four weeks of intensive cognitive behavioral therapy, demonstrating the power of psychotherapy to change the neural circuitry of OCD. Sometime after this interview was recorded, Monica reached out to me to let me know that after taking paroxetine for many years, she decided to stop taking it and her itchy skin calmed down. Despite a very gradual taper and switching to other SSRIs, coming off of the medicine was very, very difficult. And she wants to make sure that this interview is not seen as an endorsement for the medicine. So I want to talk now about resources for dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder. And the first is a book by Lee Bear called The Imp of the Mind, which is about these kind of haunting images and obsessions that can happen with OCD. Another is to talk to your primary care doctor, just as Monica did, who was so helpful in steering her towards a therapist and defining medication that can make a difference. If you did not get a chance to hear this whole show, or if you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to our website, safespaceradio.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show. You can also download this show or any other of the previous shows to your smartphone for your morning commute. You can download us from iTunes if you prefer, and you can like us on Facebook. My thanks again to Gabe Graben for producing the show, to Jim Ryan.